Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor and good mate Richard Hill. Howdy, Richard. Howdy, Matt. It's uh, great to see you. Look, I, I'm just sitting here. I'm getting a bit dark because the the sun has come out. My my goodness, it's, <laughs> it's blowing a breeze, but there's blue sky. Yes. Um, so the, the weather is just a mystery. It's a marvel <laughs> and a mystery. Anyway. <laughs> so, Richard, today we are staying in Australia for once. Good heavens. I, I could unpack my bag. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we're, we're off to Brisbane. And today we're going to talk to a GP, Joanna Lynch. She's a, been a family doctor for 25 years, and she spent the last 15 years developing innovative clinical approaches to those who have survived childhood trauma and neglect. But importantly for us, she's also written a book, A Whole Person Approach to Wellbeing, Building Sense of Safety. Yes, it is so interesting. We're going to talk to all, and she'll bring out all this stuff about safety and, and the whole person. And what, what I love about it is that here we are uh, in the psychotherapy, you know, psychological area. We're trying to, to get uh, our group people to, to embrace some of the medical understandings, you know, the genetics and the pathologies and so on and so forth. And there she is in the medical area trying to get people to embrace the whole area of the, the psychologies and the and what's going on. So fundamentally, this is a fantastic person for us to connect with because she examples exactly what we're doing. We should, by joining up with her, I mean, mm-hmm. we'll have to talk to her about teaming up. It's, yep. I wonder what we can do. It'll be really great, but she's really interesting. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, so before we go uh, go over and talk to Dr. Lynch, uh, if you do appreciate what we're doing here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, check out the show notes and click on a link there, become a member of the Science of Psychotherapy Academy, buy our book, or just jump on our email list. We would love to be engaged with you. Yeah, and we're the email's kind of beautiful and harmless and comes and just gives you an idea of uh, the exciting things we're doing. Uh, just short and sweet. We hope you're able to just join us in one way or the other. Fantastic. Okay, let's go across to Brisbane and talk to Dr. Lynch. Dr. Lynch, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to see you. Yeah, it's such a privilege to be here with you both. Yeah, hello, Joanna. Richard here. Great, great, to, great to meet you at last. I've been looking at your stuff. It's so interesting. You've done masses of really great things and you've done something that we love is you've taken this time, put it down into a book, which is out in hardback and uh, uh, an ebook, I think, but it's coming out in paperback, which actually makes things a bit accessible. So that'll come out in a while. We'll talk about all that. But Perhaps you could just fill us in a little bit. We've said a few things about you already, but what's some of the the salient elements that you want to tell about yourself and just what brought you to put this book down, to, to write, take that time to write? Well, yes, so I'm a GP or family um, doctor and I've been working in the field for about 25 years and I guess I've got tired of people being treated as fragmented parts uh, and I, I encountered that over and over in my clinical work um, I followed a trail following my patients, really, who taught me around uh, the, how much their lived experience, how much their life story, relationships, uh, how they saw the world and um, those sorts of things had influenced their health. And so began looking into that about 15 years ago, um, training in trauma attachment and um, grief and loss as well as part of my kind of way of seeing that part of distress in our community. 
Um, and then as I, I built my own little clinic, a transdisciplinary clinic that I ran for about five years, trying to serve the adult survivors of childhood trauma and neglect that I had in my community. And um, that was really a wonderful time. That clinic ran beautifully and my patients really enjoyed the the mixture of art therapy and music therapy and um, trauma-informed yoga and mental health nurse and psychologists, social workers. Uh, But I felt really on the edge of my profession. There wasn't really a funding model for that kind of clinic and I was also worried but it really had started to offer what I now know as tra- strength-based trauma-informed practice. Uh, but um, I had no framework to confirm I was on the right track. And so went back to uni to do a PhD to, to examine that. Uh, and so that's where the book's uh, kind of core has come from. And why uh-huh. I decided to write it is because it was a big story. It couldn't just fit in a few journal papers um, I was trying to frame a new way of thinking about knowing about people uh, that was not um, confined to either the social sciences way of seeing or the biomedical way of seeing. And I needed um, the space to explain that to, to the community that might need it. Now, coming from the perspective of a GP, it sounds like there was quite a, uh, a big gaps to fill in. For you, can you just tell us about the shift between what you were trained in as a as a GP and where you are now, looking at the whole person? Yeah, so I think a traditional GP really already was a whole person and probably trauma informed in practice. And when I write about this, I say good quality general practice is trauma informed uh, because uh, a good traditional GP would have taken into account the whole family setting. And would have known the family well over time and got to know their patient well over time through multiple different types of interactions, whether it be a short consultation or a long one, they build a relationship over time. And one Swedish writer in this space calls GPs who do that work resilient relationists, because despite the system, we have stayed true to uh, kind of the origins of our tradition of caring for the whole within their context. Uh, But there is a shift in how biomedicine values evidence that has taken over uh, in recent years so that only a form of evidence that's about being observed and repeatable kind of knowledge that's easy to measure is considered valid evidence. And so um, that's shifted practice towards um, more reductionist ways of seeing the person and obviously, we've seen that in the specialising of care as well in, in, in the wider sort of health community. So, so yes. it's that kind of movement I'm trying to fight against or preserve, uh, protect uh, mm. that way of seeing the person. Yeah, because yeah, because I remember, well, 30 years ago, uh, 35 years ago, the uh, physician that we had in, in the area where we were bringing up our kids and, uh, you know, where I was uh, sort of spent a, the, a good part of my life. And he was a real family doctor. And we went round and, you know, first name terms and all those sorts of beautiful things. And and then this uh, evidence-based stuff uh, start to the, the controlling nature of it. And he used to say, um, we'd, we'd go there and sit there and he would say, well, just a minute, I've got to tick a bunch of boxes. Uh, and he would tick a bunch of boxes and then he would uh, go back to what we usually did, which was what he would stop and he would turn his seat and he would look at you and um, uh, and that that sort of interactive interpersonal interpersonal work. 
but it, it it is this discussion. I was having it in a, a, a conference. I was actually in Bangladesh the other day, which was which was very interesting. She was talking about traditional medicine in India, but then she was saying the right things, which was, but we have to have evidence-based and blah, blah, blah. And I was fortunately the discussant at the end of it, and I said, we do have to remember that the evidence that we're, we're, we're seeking and the evidence that we're producing is evidence of what already exists. So we have to be mindful that we're not discounting what already exists. And beautifully, someone had done a breathing session on breathing. And I said, if we didn't have evidence for breathing, I doubt everyone would stop breathing. So this is something that uh, uh, you have been, how, how have you managed with that? How, what sort of re reaction have you had from the industry that has been, I have forced into it, but then of course, new ones coming in who know nothing but it. I've got the opportunity, I've been given the opportunity to speak and teach medical students early on in their careers, uh, but only in the sort of edge of the profession. Um, there's a slow growing and openness to that in the current curriculum redesign at my university, University of Queensland. So oh, good. that's kind of hopeful. They're using words like transdisciplinary and whole person in their curriculum design. Um, and there's, I think there's a shift in the profession at large where those who've been forced to do work, that's really not what they signed up to do in terms of the meaningfulness of the connectedness to their community, uh, wanting to shift towards uh, ways of protecting this whole person approach. And so we're seeing a growing number of people joining the association I'm president of, the Australian Society for Psychological Medicine, that is a society of GPs who do complex whole person care. And um, they're coming from uh, areas where GPs serve the vulnerable. And really, I see in some ways those patients teach us about the whole. They show us the patterns of what impacts a person. And so the GPs that work towards that or, or turn towards that, those groups of people um, end up with this complex skill set that we want to protect and care for. Wonderful. So we're, we're finding ways to move away from the dominant quantitative um, way of seeing things to a more qualitative way of seeing things. Yes, well, I, I would say it's more from, from my perspective, it's around making sure we value both. Because mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think there is a shift, say, in the, the person-centred or patient-centred movement uh, which is towards uh, social science values around relationship, participation, context, meaning, subjective experience. Yep. And those things are coming into public health policy, you know, where we highly value patient-reported experiences and how they see their outcomes. Uh, but uh, somewhere in, in the middle between the biomedical and the social science is where a transdisciplinary lens or a generalist lens sits and that's this skill of noticing the details and caring about the numbers and the, you know, the um, traditional evidence base um, kind of world at the same time as deeply caring about story, narrative, context, culture and personal lived experience. Um, and it's that skill that I think could get lost in the mix because these two kinds of knowledge are studied in different faculties uh, and so the people who sit in the middle can get slowly written out of the story, I, I think is the potential. Yeah, so you, so when we talk about transdisciplinary awareness and, and you're involved in a university, how much interdisciplinary 
conversations, connections are actually happening between departments? Uh, that is quite difficult, uh, you know, in terms of, and look, that's one of the things in the literature about transdisciplinary knowledge, that it, it, it automatically has a sitting on the border. It's never going to be a mainstream uh, position. You're never going to really have something that major that champions you. And so if you develop transdisciplinary ideas, you have the risk that they won't be used because there's nobody championing you. Um, mm. And uh, But at the same time, people are very open. So, for example, I've been establishing a biomarker advisory team for my project because although it's uh, very social science-oriented where we notice relationships and culture, context and people's personal experience, we don't want to lose how the idea also connects to the body. And right. uh, so those uh, biomarker experts have come from diverse fields. You know, there's people studying technology and how we monitor the autonomic nervous system. There's people studying back pain and how sleep and exercise and stress levels change pain. There's people studying chronic pain and how relationships impact chronic pain. Uh, there's people studying cellular stress that are noticing patterns between different diseases, like uh, all the mucosal diseases, so asthma and fatty liver and inflammatory uh, processes in the bowel. Uh, so we're getting it's a lovely buy-in across the disciplines um, when we invite them, but it's really inviting them to a project that's separate from something major organised in the mainstream. Right. Yeah, so yes. We have a bit of a, an analogy or metaphor um, from the mechanical world of, of uh, cars, of motor cars, where, where you can have the discipline of spark plugs, the discipline of, of carburetors, the discipline of, of um, pistons, but uh, transdisciplinary would be actually what I would call the engine. And this is what is lost um, because when we, when we talk about um, differentiation that's different than that that initial what you said this separation uh, of of the elements um, and it was beautiful when you were talking about all those just then all those fabulous looks at ways in which pain manifest and are experienced and are affected and of course the idea then is to bring all those in together uh, to sit because the client is sitting there with some sleep issues, some mucosal issues, some gut issues, um, and and that's the secret. I'm I'm uh, I'm hearing. Are you able to? to uh, is the intention with all those different studies, as you're saying, you're aware of them, again to to differentiate them but bring them all together? Yeah. So we've been exploring how language can accidentally worsen our separation, and um, how that maybe uh, I, I kind of joke in my book about the king's horses not being able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again because they all now speak different languages. And um, so the idea that ordinary phrase, an ordinary English phrase, that I think you know, if we think about qualitative research, it's already had a multiple focus group over a couple of centuries to work out we all know what we mean when we say a sense of safety. And so my, my thesis was really looking at the literature across disciplines to see if that concept was hidden inside other disciplines already. Um, yeah. And I found it. I found it in funny places, like the actual phrase sense of safety was used in the built environment literature about how people feel safer in their homes if they have solidarity with their neighbours and if they have green spaces around them. Uh, and the term sense of danger was in the immunology literature 
about how a cell senses in the immune system that danger's coming and that we need an immune response. Uh, and of course, we know it's in psychological safety and workplace kind of assessment of how people are more creative and work more in teams if they're feeling safe at work. And uh, we know it's in the attachment ideas around how the quality of relationships between our, our intimate relationships make us feel brave enough to face the world and also somewhere to return to when we're terrified. Uh, and so yeah. on it went. And so there was that real sense of actually I think this might be a language that could help these disciplines all have the same goal mm. uh, and all be able to share the language with the patient and and that actually sense of safety is an ordinary goal of every human being. And so if we came as clinicians alongside that, then we would be with the patient helping them do what they wanted to do anyway, which is to feel safer in the world. Uh, but it also yeah. has implications for how we see disorder. Um, so things like um, smoking, for example, or, or other kinds of addictions that people are using to feel safe. Uh, so yeah. it has potential to shift our language and our way of seeing towards a more strength-based and yeah. trauma-informed. So we know that people actually do feel terrified and despairing and that the opposite of that is sense of safety. And so we know some, we know where we want to go for them. Um, yeah. yeah. This aspect of language, I mean, I believe that the DSM was originally um, to provide some common language around mental disorders so the different researchers could speak the same language because it seems that the different scientific disciplines have created their own um, dialects almost, you know, to within their silos. Um, mm. And so to be able to come back to a common language, I think, is is so important. Uh, if we, yes, that, you, that meta-language thing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and safety, you know, I mean, that was the word, of course, that jumped out in the book with, with so many of the things, uh, aspects and the chapters and the titles and the subheadings. Uh, but linguistics was my first degree because mm. I was actually an actor and I talked a lot, so I thought I'd figure it out. <laughs> but we end up, uh, we now do a little experiment uh, sometimes in, in, in face-to-face workshops and things where we use a very positive word uh, and just say that very positive word a bunch of times and then a sort of a, a, a more negative word which and you talk about words and positive and negative and functional and dysfunctional words and when we say the negative word people talk about the, the pressure in the chest and and uh, closing up and of course this is all we know the the neuroscience behind it the 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 closing down of attention the focusing on threat so on and so forth and then when we say the positive word uh, things open up they lift they rise and and literally you know this is talking about changes in gene expression and changes in uh, everything about the body um, that what we do in in seeking evidence, in seeking research, is we discount. We try and get rid of all those those mm -hmm. variables, and that's actually the problem with it, isn't it? it the is removal of the variables, yeah, very much so. And I think GPs we've suffered from the side effect of the the kind of reduced way that evidence has been gathered, so that most of our patients wouldn't actually fit into the study cohorts because they're too there's too many complex <laughs> things going on. Uh, and so we we see that uh, some of that evidence is not applying. We can't actually even interpret it for, in a useful way for our patient mm -hmm. because they've got all the things that were meant they would have been excluded from a study. 
Uh, And so, yes, some way of helping us understand complexity and using pattern recognition is hidden inside this concept of a sense of safety. And I talk a little bit about how as GPs we um, head towards a goal. So when we know a blood pressure, a normal blood pressure, and then we can look for anything that's not normal, it becomes something we can look for. Um, so whether it's a little bit up or a little bit down or a lot up or a lot down doesn't really matter because we know it's not where it's meant to be. And, you know, the psychological medicine area has had a problem with not being able to define what normal is um, yeah. mm. in inverted commas. Uh, yes, this, yeah. this what what makes someone a functional human being uh, in what context and, you know, who says, yeah. Yeah, what well-being is. And so I thought, you know, sense of safety has the potential to be an undisputed goal that we would all agree on uh, for people. Uh, But it also enables us to then pick up really subtle things that are not okay. So it helps us with early intervention and prevention as well um, because we don't need it to have ended up in some kind of disorder description for us to um, have seen that something's the matter. So it really helps with pattern recognition at that early end. Yes, and I mean we often talk about disorders, uh, you know, classifying disorder as a distraction from this broader this broader way of thinking because it's like, oh, good, it's that, and then then you can then you can you can go for it and and miss so many things. And I must admit, in our book, we use in, in the, the beginning chapter a, 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 an interesting aspect with some psychotherapists where we use something that looks terribly psychological and uh, attitudinal and characteristic but then we find out that it actually has a biological uh uh relationship to it so you know we try to give that 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 image that it's both ways yeah Yeah. and i when i teach um about this i talk about spurious precision where (laughs) uh, you know you've just you've developed a uh, you know you think you know what you've got in terms of ticking a few boxes with disorder but you've missed everything else that might be important um, in that space, um, yeah. that's such a problem. Is, uh, even with experienced clinicians, when they feel like they're not doing what they're meant to do with sort of disorder finding, um, which has become part of how we sort of almost train GPs that they're not doing a good job if they haven't identified enough depression, sort of thing. Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so to re- for in talking about GPs, so to reach a you know uh, a place of good practice where a lot of this, what you're talking about, becomes intuitive. What's required? Because my impression of GPs is that they're very busy, that they're under pressure to get, you know, patients through and and probably not a lot of time to study all of this uh, other stuff. So what's required for a GP to go from where they are to what you would consider excellent practice? Well, I think to begin with, GPs already have a bit of a focus on safety. So from practical things like drug dosing to um, watching over a mother and child when we do a new baby check to check on how they're bonding, um, mm. we're already um, doing some safety um, approaches and sort of our, our patient safety is already fundamental to us. And my current research has been in focus groups with GPs around the world, and they say beautiful things like be offering safety or this dance of safety I do with my patients is really my main work. 
uh, it's why I um, I'm important to them when they're passing away that my presence brings safety because they've known me so well over the years and um, so there's this sense that it's not too far away from the culture of general practice to be aiming towards patient safety and the pieces that I'd love to increase their awareness of are the internal what are called um, safe on the inside um, so the way they patients talk to themselves and critique themselves and view themselves and their sense of how they make sense of their own meaning in the world uh, that kind of existential distress that um, some Norwegian GPs are researching are linked as linked to multimorbidity, um, and then a little bit wider awareness of the kind of dynamics in families and the wider community that are, um, you know, oppressing or, or distressing uh, people in their own homes, and how much of that's sort of underpinning some of the things they think are ordinary everyday presentations. Uh, so I think it's a widening of the view and a deepening of what they already do. And we do teach GPs focused psychological strategies through um, the Australian Society for Psychological Medicine. And what we're finding is a natural, you know, some GPs saying, oh, I find all these bits that I had, I can see a coherence. Um, when I teach about sense of safety, um, they talk about how you're describing what I do, but I didn't have words to describe it. And so there's a piece of this that's around protecting something that is already there in some clinicians and enabling it to be taught to others. Now, of course, this is extremely important when we consider that GPs are the primary gateway um, for people to be referred on to other mental health professionals, be it a psychiatrist, a psychologist, what have you. Um, and so the... Um, the keenness of awareness of what's going on um, in the psychological realm is, is is terribly important. I don't know if there's been um, that emphasis up until recently. Yeah, I think, uh, look, overall our training in mental health has come because of sheer exposure. So when I teach uh, experienced GPs, I say, actually, you're one of the most skilled mental health clinicians in the community because you see so many people. And because you see so many well people, your capacity to pick when they're starting to become unwell um, mm. is really good. Um, and the other thing is that they're very skilled at not shaming their patients uh, because we have to deal with some very disgusting things in our work. Um, and so the skill of being able to not turn your face up in disgust um, at people's bodies uh, is actually a skill that can be translated in not turning our faces towards people's own stories that they may feel ashamed about. And so yeah. harnessing those two um, skills, I think, is not too far away from the heart of, of the generalist, the heart of the family physician. Um, but obviously there's a subset of clinicians that we're, we're talking to because some really want to stay with being just body doctors. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that Matt and I've talked about quite often is our different early careers, and mine was in acting, as I've, I've mentioned. And this was what we did, uh, and we, I think it was a great place for me to learn what I do now, is that you would get a script 
And the words that people said, the order they put them in, the pauses they made, and in fact, you know, some uh, some playwrights would actually write pause. So when you breathe is actually relevant to your thinking patterns. And we would create from those words a human being. So it's ipso facto reverse. And the, the words mm. that they say and the words that they don't say um, and, you know, it was so interesting, Stephen Porges, when he was with his polyvagal theory, I mean, he noticed this, this safety aspect and actually gave the, the sort of the scanning mechanism, he called it um, uh, a neuroception, mm. uh, without really having a, a, a particular um, detailed description of what it was, but that we actually scan the environment for safety, uh, you know, all the time. Uh, and uh, and those things that you're saying about the nature of the way the physician is engaging with you, well, there it is. That's the rapport that we talk about in psychotherapy, isn't it? Yes, and I think, you know, neuroception, uh, the concept of neuroception and Stephen Porges thinking around safety is certainly very um, central to the theory in my, um, my thesis, uh, as is the work of Maslow, who wrote a long time before the disciplines um, existed, and he called human beings uh, safety-seeking organisms. Mm. And um, and a lot of his thinking has deeply influenced uh, mine. Uh, but I would say, too, that process of neuroception, the rapport building, the embodied nature of a clinical consultation where we're sensing each other's breathing, we're sensing little flickers of the eye and eyebrow raises and hand movements and uncomfortable squirmings and silences. Um, all of those skills, when we talk to experienced GPs, they, they tell us about them, they teach them to us in the focus groups we've been doing. Uh, and we're working on a combined patient survey that talks about how safe they feel alongside a, pa a pattern recognition prompt for the clinician to teach clinicians the, the fine-tuning of this skill of noticing how safe the other person feels. Which you're not um, doing terribly well while you're looking at a screen and ticking boxes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's trying to, there's a movement. In fact, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald just recently from uh, one of the up-and-coming GPs, Isabel Hansen, talking about the GP drought and she talked about the need for slow medicine, not fast medicine. Mm -hmm. She says it's as bad for us as fast food. And uh, the idea that slowing down how we relate actually does better work long term. Yes. And that, again, that's a bit of a cultural shift, I would imagine. So you're spending longer, you're having longer term relationships with the families that you're caring for. Um, which I know some local practices here and they've got two dozen doctors and you go in and pick a number and and you, and you get a different person every time. It takes your chances. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. So I guess it's trying to protect what existed before those kinds of clinics existed. And, you know, I had the joy of being trained by some lovely, wise GPs who'd done their time and are still working into their 70s around me in the neighbourhood I'm in. And, uh, you know, the way they were with people gen in, and the way they interacted in their community and served the vulnerable in their community has definitely influenced my work. Um, and it's partly that heritage that I want to keep a hold of as we go into the next, um, you know, decades. Uh, but there has been some real funding problems with long consultations in yes. our community. So I've had to make the decision to really bring more less than half of what I could bring into my home 
because I've taken the, the decision to do long consultations. And we would see in the GP world that there's a lot of female um, uh, learn, earning less because we're seen as the caring ones who want to care and would take an interest. And so people bring to us their longer, more detailed, complex situations which take longer and a Medicare funding is designed to reward shorter appointments and yeah. uh, and designed to reward fee for service. So any of the collaboration you might do with other disciplines or time spent ringing and checking um, or linking them to social services is not paid for in the current system. Um, there are moves, and I, I got interviewed just recently about you know public policy changes around how we care for the vulnerable. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, an area that I think needs some theoretical backing for why we need it. And that's part of what my thesis was about. Absolutely. Because the best, you know, clinicians are the ones that are doing it because it's a calling, not because it's uh, just a, just a, a utility to make money. So um, if it's your calling and you do want to spend the time, you do want to, uh, you know, be your very best and be available to your patients, then... Yeah, you're not going to fit into that uh, that co really commercial model, are you? No, and I, I've got a fundamental problem with us using other people's tax money to make a, a, a funding stream for profit. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's some issues yep. with that funding model uh, that are ethical as well. Uh, but from the point of view of GPs who want to do this wholehearted work, and in fact, Maslow talked about wholehearted attending being taking much more energy than categorizing. And yeah. he called for a use of what he called love knowledge um, when we care for people. And, and so I think, you know, we need to shift the language and the you know, kind of policy conversations around this in order to protect what's quite a precious thing that could get written out of the story. Mm. And, and of course, when we're talking interpersonally, Richard, you know, you've got a, a beautiful understanding, a model of the cycles, the natural cycles in terms yes. of time. Yes, we use, and actually this is one of the things that Ernest Rossi, my mentor, uh, sort of teased out because his his mentor, uh, Milton Erickson, who was a very famous uh, yes. psychiatrist in America, would always do 80 to 90 minute sessions and if, find out and eventually discovered uh, work from Kleitman, uh, Nathaniel Kleitman, a few others as well who didn't want to talk to hypnotherapists, but uh, of the, this uh, basic rest activity cycle, which we saw in dreaming, and then we saw it during the day, and then we see it as an energy rise, an energy flow, and uh, and that there's actually a, a healing pause. There's a pause uh, of about 20 minutes every couple of hours, which relate to our eating practices, uh, where we re-energize and actually have changes in gene expression. And, and this, this, this time taken is, is, is so important. And I'll just quickly add, sorry, I don't want to hog it, but, but I was lucky to spend some time with Patch Adams, the clown doctor, as he was called, of course, who, who never charged. He had great donors for doing things, but they also worked at places. But someone would have some kind of persistent, uh, difficult, uh, uh, illness and perhaps even just something simple like a persistent cold or something and he'd say oh great uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll have a look at you come bring the family and stay with us for a week and <laughs> he would walk with them and talk with them and uh, uh, and and so totally impractical in the in the modern economic world um, but but that sort of thing um, I guess was the old 
the old healers, the village healers, who would would do that sort of form mm. of of uh, mm. time taken and integrative practice. Yeah. Yes, and I think that points too to the professionalizing of knowledge um, and the professionalizing of what I, you know, advisedly call the mental health industry. Um, and the de-skilling de of our wider community and how to have conversations that are supportive and kind yeah. to our neighbours. Uh, and yeah. so I guess I saw the sense of safety model also offering a language that crosses that boundary. Uh, so it could be equally applicable to somebody offering someone a cup of tea as it could be to someone offering, you know, hypnotherapy for childhood trauma. And um, that both both are aiming for the same thing, which is that this people person feels safer in the world uh, where they are. And it's one of the explanations or, or uh, understandings of of why so many different therapeutic interventions can have a positive effect if they can produce a sense of safety. And we actually know from other uh, work and certainly work that Ernest uh, Rossi and, and some of our group did on gene expression, on the changes, when you can relax, when you can feel centred, when you can feel more self-efficacious uh, in the Bandura uh, uh, mm -hmm. term, but also that area of Maslow of, of uh, autonomous, that the gene expression would improve to anti-inflammatory processes and more stem cell processes. Uh, uh, it's really, really fascinating fascinating that the whole body, the whole body is interested in our health. Mm. And so healers need to be interested in the whole body. Yeah. 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 And look, even beautiful things like hope. Um, there's a fantastic study done by Robert and a population-based study who he worked originally with Vincent Felitti. Um, and he um, he showed that how, how hopeless you are impacted your cardiac death rate even when you had no cardiac symptoms at the beginning of his study, uh, which was what the cohort he used. And the level of hopelessness impacted uh, sort of the, there was a dose effect. Uh, so, you know, hope is something that people say they need for recovery, and yet we don't really measure it in our current ways of measuring outcomes in mental health. Uh, and same with feeling connected to other people and uh, feeling that we have an active role in our own lives, those things are, are what the people who've recovered from mental distress describe as things they need. And so, yeah, that idea, that uh, sense of safety into the future is also a part of what we need um, to be well. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just um, remembering when you're talking about, you know, people just being loving and paying attention to other people. I've heard some disturbing commentaries about um, the society today where if there's an injured person in the street, just how less likely people are now to, to assist. Mm. Um, and it seems like that's quite becoming more pervasive in the Western world and it's it's very, very disturbing. So we, we need a, not just for GPs and psychotherapists, we need a cultural, a complete cultural shift towards caring for one another and creating safe safety for one another. Mm, yes. I, I often quote a, uh, a saying that's attributed to, to Hippocrates that says that we're meant to uh, cure sometimes, heal often, and console always. <laughs> that's great. And, and I can't, I think, you know, if we could just get the console bit better, um, the other stuff wouldn't matter so much if we did more of the consoling um, in every in every interaction. Yeah, beautiful. Now, your book, the whole person approach to well being, aimed for your cohort of GPs or 
anyone? Who, who are you talking to? Um, so it's actually aimed for all practitioners uh, mm-hmm. across the disciplines, uh, including teachers, uh, okay. because uh, the, the concepts are designed to be uh, able to be used across those. When I tested them in multidisciplinary groups, they said, we want this too, don't just keep it to the medicine. And, uh, and so that was part of the thinking behind it. The other part, kind of key idea in it is that it embeds some Indigenous pedagogy and understanding of knowledge uh, because we had two Indigenous academics as part of the stakeholders who were interviewed for my thesis because I didn't want to write a book that was trauma-informed in Australia without the input of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Mm. And I also wanted us to acknowledge the wisdom that's in some of what I call the wisdom cultures who still see the body as connected to community and, and country and our, our own Australian uh, Indigenous peoples or, uh, you know, whole, have held that knowledge for us for centuries. But I'd say also other, other cultures around the world, including the Hebrew um, wisdom culture, who existed before Greeks sort of div- divided us into body and mind and yes. Descartes did more of that. We love um, the Greeks a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> before they did that, we had a whole um, already. And one of my mentors from Norway talks about how it's not about bridging a divide between the body and the mind or um, the person and their community. It's it's that we uh, actually were never divided in the first place. It's just that we divided them to study and we forgot to put them back together yes, to treat and care. Yeah, removing that imagined that imagined divide. Mm. And uh, but I actually must admit, I found it very readable. Uh, and I was looking, thinking of it in the different roles I have. And uh, I found as a parent, there was uh, there was a lot of really interesting, and then I thought actually my kids could do with some of you know my older kids. I don't think it's for for uh, necessarily. I think you need to probably have um, up into the, the the university type of level of of reading. But I found it very readable on very broad broad levels. Uh, so that I think is a great congratulations to you because that's hard to do to make something that covers a lot of ground uh, easy to read. But the ground you're covering is to talk about the human being and we can all relate to it so easily because we yeah. pretty much all are ones uh, except <laughs> most of us. <laughs> most of us. I don't know. I see my children sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll put links in the show notes um, to your website and people can, can find the book there as well. Any final words as we wrap up? Oh, just thank you so much for listening, for for asking questions, that um, for showing me that you're already, I know you're already working in that space and that's why I approached you to talk through these things and I'm just so thankful for the time and the, the wisdom that you both share with the world. Thank you. Absolutely wonderful. Well, we appreciate what you've been doing in uh, in your work as well. So, Dr. Lynch, thank you so much for joining us here on The Science of Psychotherapy, and no doubt we'll be catching up again in the future. Thank you. Bye for now. Ah, fabulous. One of our people. One of our people and, <laughs> and, and one who can teach us a lot. Yeah. I mean, this whole, I mean, when we talked about safety and she suddenly said, and we say Stephen Porges, he says, oh, yeah, I know Stephen Porges. Uh, yeah. And then she also knows Luke Cozzolino and a lot of his work. But then also looking at the uh, how the, the physician 
I, I'm almost like that that term rather than the doctor because now doctors right. become that thing you go down to and you spend five minutes with them. They they shove you out the door as fast as you get in. Right. But you're, you're the family physician, you know. Yes. Anyway, yeah. she's she's great. Love yep. Her. So um, family GP, such a vital role, such a key person in our society will be fantastic to see this, uh, what's really a cultural shift in that practice. And uh, sounds like Dr. Lynch, She's she's on it. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, off air, she said, oh, and I must buy your book. So <laughs> that was a good, a good, so a doctor was to buy a book, which is really great. But don't forget our book out there, The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. Yeah, That's the one that encapsulates and gives everyone uh, a framework of what we're doing and a framework that you can build on to expand your own understanding and take you into the academy with a great deal of, of strength and support. So uh, please jump out there, Amazon on everywhere, uh, grab it. And if you're in Australia, I, I think it's landed on the shores so things, uh, uh, product is steaming out to you as fast as you can order it. Beautiful. Okay, well, thank you everybody for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast and we will catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.